Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And our text this morning will be verses 11 to 13. We're slowly marching our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I think in another 15 weeks we'll be done. So we'll see how that that goes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. Follow along in your Bibles as I read the Word of God. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Join with me in prayer this morning as before we work our way through this text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you've given it to us because we could not know you without it. We thank you that you put it in human language to be understood. We thank you that it has now been translated into our language so that we can read it for ourselves. And so we also thank you for the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, not only to indwell us, but also to illuminate the truths of your word so that we can know for sure what you are saying. And we thank you that we don't live in a world of doubt and in a world where we can't find truth, but we know that we can because we are aided by the Holy Spirit. And so this morning as we go to your word again, we pray that your spirit would teach us and that he would again impress the truths of your word on our hearts, convince us of those things and that we would ultimately be transformed by them and that we would go out more in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ than when we came. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. The prayer meeting began, I mean the Sunday school class began, and the topic was prayer. And so as prayer was being discussed, it came about that why doesn't the church pray more? Why aren't there more people in the prayer meeting? What is going on? And so there was debate as to why and why there wasn't more people there and what prayer was about. And then this statement was made in the middle of the, of the Sunday school class. It doesn't matter what you pray, it only matters that you pray. Now there was a little bit of stunned silence by some, because it would certainly seem that the scriptures are full of prayers and they're full of examples of how to pray and what to pray for, and it is as important what you pray as that you pray. Because after all, there are warnings about the heathens who pray and they repeat and they have no mind as they pray and they have repetition without understanding. And there's warnings against that. And so when it comes to prayer then, sometimes we may find that as we pray and as we start to pray that we don't really know what to pray for or we don't know how to pray. Or we might think, am I praying correctly? 
And we might think, well, I pray often, but it seems like I pray the same way all of the time. And I really, there's no change to it. And so there can be this, there can be a kind of a, what we would say, where we seem like our prayer life has stalled. But today, Paul prays a prayer for us. And he prays a prayer for the Thessalonians that is a prayer that is a model for us to pray. And Paul demonstrates for us what a mature Christian prays for. Now remember, Paul is praying under the Holy Spirit. He is, he is not just a godly man, but at this point, he is a godly man who is praying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so whatever Paul is praying for is something that we should also pray for. It's something that is, if it's important enough to put it in Scripture, then the concepts and the ideas that he is praying for are something that we should also pray for. And so Paul starts this section here, and, and he prays, as it were, for the Thessalonians. He prays for himself in relation to the Thessalonians, and then he prays for the Thessalonians. He gives two petitions here. He wants to be directed to them, and he prays for them to increase in love. And he gives us this model prayer, and it's a prayer that really should be reflected in our prayers. In other words, when we look at this prayer, we should say, does my prayer measure up to this? Are these the concerns that I put to the Lord in prayer, or are they not there at all? And therefore, these things should be something that I include in my prayers. Now, as Paul does this, he is... He is finishing up this, he's really transitioning from the last section of of Scripture to the next part of the book. And he has been going through the first section of this book, and he really gave thanksgiving for the work of God in the Thessalonians' lives. He told them that he was actually concerned about them as a pastor. He wasn't abandoning them, that he had he had not just left them on their own, but that he, and he wasn't like the philosophers that used to travel around from town to town, but he had sacrificially worked with them. In fact, he had wanted to be with them so much that he had sent Timothy to help them and to encourage them and to strengthen them because he himself could not go. And so Paul is grateful to God for them and he's grateful for what God has accomplished in them. But as he comes to the end of verse 10, he comes and he says this statement. And he says, we might, in verse 10, and we night and day kept praying most earnestly that we might see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. And Paul says, and he's been on this train about their faith and what's lacking in their, in their faith. And he says, I recognize that you are only six months old in the faith. And that there are, you are not mature in Christ. You don't know everything. You haven't been completely Christ. You're not completely Christ-like yet. You're still growing. You're still working on your sanctification. And so he says, my concern is that I want to be with you to complete what is lacking in your faith. And so as he comes to our text now, he begins to pray. 
and he begins to pray for them. And what we're going to actually see that in his request, he is going to pray for what he is about to complete their faith in. In other words, he's praying and he's going to pray about the things that he sees lacking in their faith. And he's going to talk about, in the rest of this book, he's going to talk about their love and their relationship with to one another. And he's going to talk about their future hope, about their hope about Christ's coming and what will take place when he comes. And so he says, I recognize that you are not fully mature. There's things that you need to, to be corrected in. And there are things that I haven't taught you yet. And I'm going to teach you those as I come. But as he brings this prayer, it's almost Paul is, is almost preparing their hearts. It's like he is, he is preparing them for what he's about to give them. In other words, he's softening their hearts through prayer, where he can just pray. And as they pray with them, as they read this, hopefully their hearts will be changed and be ready for what he's about to say. And so Paul begins this prayer and, and really, we would say he gives us two requests, two requests that should be uh, in our prayers. We should look at our prayers and say, are these two requests in our prayer life? And if not, we need to add them to our prayer life as we pray specifically for others. He says, first of all, and I would say this, the first request is simply this, Lord, Use me, Lord, use me in helping others in their faith. And then number two, Lord, increase their love for you so that they are worthy to stand before you. And so he gives these two prayer requests for the church at Thessalonica, two requests that we should give for others. So he turns now and he says, Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. So Paul says, I, I, I want, I, I'm going to turn to what God can do alone. Before I sent Timothy to you, I wanted him to help you. He was the instrument. But now he says, I'm turning to God alone. He is the one who can answer these prayers. He's the one that can make this happen. And he says, may, may our God and Father himself. And this is unusual for Paul because this is, this indicates the idea of a wish. Normally Paul just prays and he goes for it. But here he says, I wish this for you. And there's a sense that Paul is still pulling the Thessalonians back to him and saying, I didn't abandon you because I want you to recognize that what I'm praying for you is what my heart is for you. I still want this for you. This, this is a revelation of my heart. Even though it's a prayer to God, it is also a revelation of my prayer, of my concern for you. This is what my heart is towards you. I have a sincere heart. This is what I want to do for you. He says, may our God, and again, he includes his audience with him. He's not just my God. He's not just the missionary's God, but he is he is their God as well. And he says, May the God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct. Now it's interesting here because sometimes what is said or not said is as loud as what it is said. 
I don't know if that made sense. It made sense when I first said it. The idea is this. If you went to work and your boss was handing out compliments and he went to Johnny, I couldn't, I couldn't run the business without you. Bill, you're a hard worker. And then they come to you and they say, well, you show up on time, right? It's almost as loud as what, what was not said is almost as loud as what is said, right? There was nothing about being a good worker, not wanting to be there. You just show up on time. And so Paul here does the same thing. He, what, he, what he assumes in what he has just said is as loud as what he doesn't say. He says, may God the Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct. You have a double subject here. God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ under a singular word, direct. In other words, he's saying this action that is being taken here is being taken by both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as he writes, he is writing to an audience and he is saying to them, listen, the Lord Jesus Christ is as much God as God the Father. He is in equality because he is doing the same work as the Father. Therefore, he must be God. There's an equality that is put here. Now, what's very interesting to that is this. This church is six months old. Paul only spent a couple of months there. And Paul has already assumed that the teaching of the doctrine was something that this church knew. This wasn't some doctrine that was so deep that it took years to figure out. We might think it's a little bit complex, but Paul is assuming that those who he wrote to already understood this. He, he would have, he's assuming that he, as he taught to them who Jesus Christ was, as he gave them the gospel that they understood as they came to salvation that this was who the Lord Jesus Christ was. And so Paul says, this Lord Jesus Christ, he is Lord, he has the right to rule over you. This Jesus that was here on earth, he is equivalent to God. Now he also calls God the Father and he says, actually, we have a relationship with him now because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We now become sons and daughters of God. This God who seemed maybe more distant now is related to us as Father and cares for us. And this Jesus who was on earth who seemed like the one who cared for us actually has the same authority as the Father himself to rule your life. And so Paul says, I pray to God himself. I pray to the Lord, to God himself. And himself is a reflexive uh, pronoun here pointing to God and saying, this is the character of who he is. This is, the, this is the God of the universe. He himself, this is who I am praying to. And so Paul says, now may the God, now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, Jesus our Lord, direct our paths to you. Now, it's interesting because the word direct here means to mean to, to make straight, to straighten, to guide. It has, the, it has a picture of opening up the way by removal of obstacles 
so that the desired goal can be reached. And Paul says, I'm praying to God that He will direct our way to you because our way has been hindered as we saw back in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet what? Satan hindered us. And Paul, as he prays, he recognizes his dependence upon God. Paul recognizes the uselessness of personal efforts towards his revisit to the Thessalonians. He knows that God must clear the way. God must remove the obstacles that Satan had previously placed in his path. He knew that he could not go unless God opened the way. Paul had learned the secret that it is God who directs our ways. He alone is powerful enough to remove all the hindrances that Satan places in the path. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Paul recognized the sovereignty of God, and he is the supreme disposer of events. He's the one who will make it happen. And again, this word direct is always used in Scripture in the sense of divine providence controlling human action. In other words, this cannot happen outside of God's working. Now, we don't know when God answered this prayer. There's some speculation that Paul ended up going back in between and he went to Thessalonica. We do know that Paul did go back five years later And he was able to return. That's recorded in Acts chapter 20. And so Paul, this this prayer was not answered right away as far as we know. That that God answered this prayer in his times, not Paul's time. And Paul was actually able to return. So the question you might ask here, and again, he says here in, in this verse, and And may the Lord cause you... No, okay. So he says... So Paul prays and he says, this is, what, this is what I want. This is what I want God to direct my way to you. Now, why does Paul pray for this? Why does he want to go back to the Thessalonians? Is it because he wants to go to Thessalonica for the weather? Because it might have been a little bit warmer than Corinth. Maybe, maybe it was even cooler than Corinth, I don't know. Does he, does he want to go see the vacation spot and the tourist attractions? After all, he was unceremonially dumped out of the city before he was ready to go. And so maybe he had a few unfinished uh, tourist things to do. Now, it's not a bad thing, but maybe he just wanted to go see the Thessalonians and see their faces of other believers because he was lonely. And he was needy and he just, he just wanted to see them. Well, that's actually not a bad thing. But no, Paul wanted to go so that he could be the instrument of their sanctification. He wanted to be used by God to finish what was lacking in their faith. He said in 3.10, And we might night and day pray most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what? What is lacking in your faith? And in fact, that's what 
Paul had sent Timothy back to them. When Paul couldn't go, he sent Timothy, and he sent, he sent Timothy, our fellow work in the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. And Paul says, I want to go to Thessalonica because I'm not just praying for the Thessalonians that God will complete their faith. I am praying that God will use me to be the instrument that He uses to complete what is lacking their faith. You can almost hear the words of Isaiah, can't you? The Lord said, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And Paul is saying, Lord, send me. Make me the one. Let, use me to help the needs to strengthen the faith of the Thessalonians. Let me be the one to answer that prayer. Let me be the instrument, the human instrument that you use to bring about your divine will. So as we pray, as we pray for others, is this the way that we pray? I think when we pray, sometimes we... we, we we fall off the log on two sides on this. Where first of all, I see a need, and I say, I get on my and we say, I'm going to pray for that. I'm just going to pray for that, and I'm going to trust the Lord to take care of that. And so all we do is we pray, and and prayer is a good thing; it's necessary. On the other hand, there's some of us who go, there's a need. I'm off to take care of it. Lord, I'll tell you how it turns out. And off we run and we go and we take care of it. But Paul says, actually, we need to combine them. And we need to pray. And we need to say, Lord, there's a need there. Can I be your instruments in order to fulfill and to help others in their faith? Lord, use me, send me, help me to be the one who can strengthen and encourage others in the faith. Now think about that. Can you imagine if this was your heart's desire and your prayer every week, every day? Now imagine a whole church filled with people who had this on their heart. And you come together. Tell me, is there not going to be sweet fellowship? Is there not going to be a time of encouragement in the Lord and a time of growing in Him and love with Him and love with one another? Don't you want to be in a church that is like that? And Paul says, this is, this is my prayer for the Thessalonians. And ultimately, this is my prayer for our church. It's a prayer for my life. It's a prayer for you. And it's a a prayer that I hope that each one of you takes up in your own heart. And then what will we have? What a joyous time of fellowship as we seek to strengthen and encourage one another in the faith. Well, Paul's not done. He's going to move to a second petition here. And he's going to move from what God can do for him to praying for what God can do for others. 
He says in verse 12, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, for all people, just as we also do for you. And Paul says, first of all, I want to be God's number one. I want to be God's instrument to help you in your faith and to help what is lacking in it. Number two, I'm going to pray for you that your love may abound, that your love may increase. I want to pray, and as we go on to verse 13, I want to pray that God would increase your love for the sake that you you will be ready to meet Christ when He returns. Now, I don't know about you, but when is the last time you had this kind of prayer for your fellow believers in the church? I'm going to pray that your love may abound so that you're ready to meet Christ. I want your love to abound so that you're ready to meet Christ. Not so that it's more comfortable to go to church with you, right? (laughs) But ultimately, because there's going to be a time where you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account. And he says, I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready. And so Paul now, in his second petition, transitions to a different petition that is focused on others. The first one focused on how he could be useful. Now he changes his focus exclusively on the relationship between the Lord and the Thessalonians. In fact, in the original, he puts the you in the front at the very beginning of the sentence. And he says, you may be, and you may be the Lord, and may the, sorry, and you, and you may the Lord cause to increase and abound. And you. And he puts that emphasis on the you. Now what's interesting in this petition is that Paul now, he focuses this address to the Lord and and he addresses it and he says, now who is this to whom the Lord, and he says, who who is he addressing? Is, Is this Lord, the God and Father and Jesus Christ together? Is it just God? Is it just Jesus Christ? Some, some, Scholars argue that it is both. But when Paul uses the word Lord and the word kurios, and he uses it by itself all the time, every time in Scripture, he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this request for love, this request that love would would abound and grow, is made to the Lord Jesus Christ specifically. Now you might say, well, why is that? Why is that? Is it because God isn't love? Is it because God, you know, God of the Old Testament was kind of mean and Jesus is, the, is, you know, God revealed in the New Testament and he's really relational and loving? Well, no, because Paul actually says in 1 Thessalonians 4, for you yourselves are taught by God to what? Love. So God is, cap- is, is, is also love and he is capable of love and taught, teaches us love. But it may be that he refers to the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest example of love in the flesh. In other words, he walked among us. He is the one who shows us the face of God. We see the face of God in Christ Jesus. He's the one who demonstrated most his unselfishness and love for others and his self-sacrifice for them. He is the true man, the second Adam, 
and he uniquely demonstrated how to love others. He was perfect in his love for others, and he is our example in the pages of Scripture. And so he petitions the Lord Jesus Christ here in this verse, and he says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. And so his petition is that they would increase and abound in love. It's interesting terms. They're, they're basically synonyms. And, they, and put together, they, they have strength in the expression. The first strength in, has the, the first word has the idea of to uh, increase, to be in abundance, to become more. Well, the latter means to be present in abundance and to overflow. And so they may be rendered to increase or to overflow. There's almost, there could be almost a cause and effect relationship here. The, the petition is not merely that the converts will increase, but they will be filled to overflowing. In other words, it's pointing to the process. And so Paul's prayer for them is that they will be not just increasing, and again, he's assuming they are already love, and in fact, he, he talks about their love for one another, but he says, you can still love more. I want, I want your love for one another to be overflowing, super abundant, be, just beyond anything that you could imagine. We would say, in some sense, we talk about, you know, the cup running over. He's looking for a geyser to come out of that cup. He wants it to be so, so beyond, so beyond belief, so superlative. And he desires that love to grow for one another. He wants them to love one another as they, as they are to as God loves them. This is agape love. This is a love that isn't based on attractiveness, but it is based upon a love that is produced in us by the Holy Spirit for one another. And so Paul says, I I want your love to abound and increase. I want that love to be overflowing. I think sometimes when we pray, we, we pray small, right? And sometimes I think it's because we don't have a view of who our God is. And we, we, don't, we don't really see Him for who He is. And we, we pray small, but not Paul. Paul didn't pray small. He didn't say, Lord, just give Him a little bit more love. Just increase it a little bit. He, he says, I'm going for it all. I, I, want, I want it gushing everywhere. I want it gushing everywhere. And he says, I I want this love. And again, we have to define where this love is. This love increase. And he says, I want it to continue to increase, to, to keep growing. And again, we would say this, the chief evidence of transform, of trans, the transforming work is love. In other words, when the Holy Spirit works in you, when he is transforming you, he will produce what? Love. He is the one, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, right? So, some scholars would argue that 
that is fruit singular, love, and everything else that follows that is actually what? Describing love. In other words, the one fruit of the Spirit is love, and this is what it looks like. It looks like joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And he says, this is what, this is what the Holy produ- Spirit produces in you. This is so much of what Paul's theology is. This is his theology in prayer. He said in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And again, love love is the thing that produces it. He says in Thessalonians 6.10, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who are what? The household of God. And so he says, I want this love to grow, and I want it to grow for what? People in the church. This is the primary expression of our love. Our love must primarily first go to the church and to other believers. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, by your love of people of the world, people will know you are my disciple. He says, you will know you are my disciple if you what? Love one another. And the primary expression of love that must abound must first go to believers. They are, they are in the same family. You are in the family of God. You are children of God. And that is where your love is to be expressed. That is life together in the church. Over abounding in love for one another. So exorbitantly expressed that it's almost beyond comprehension. That's what Paul's praying for. But it doesn't stop there. The second focus of this love is for all humanity, for all people. He will go on to say in chapter 5, verse 15, See that no one prays another with evil for evil, or repays another for evil, evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And so he says, actually, you're supposed to love those in the world. And again, we have to let Scripture define what what love is. The world will tell us how they think we should love them. But we again have to recognize that the Bible describes to us what love is. And love always is, is always based in the truths of the Word of God. And it is always based in holiness. And so we must not allow the world to define it, but we must allow the Bible to define what love is. And so he says, I want you to grow in love for one another and for all people. And then he adds this phrase, just as we also do for you. And Paul says, I've just expressed my desire to see you. I sent Timothy to see you. My love is increasing and abounding for you. You have seen it demonstrated in our sacrificial love for you. And he says, now he holds himself up and his missionary team as an example and says, you've seen it exemplified in us as well. Follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. 
And I have this abundant love created in me by the Holy Spirit. So follow in my steps. So follow in my steps. Now we see the purpose in verse 13, really, as he's given us the content here, but now he gives us the purpose for this prayer. Why is he praying this kind of prayer? Why does he want them to abound in love? Why does he want them to have this expression? Why does he want that to take place? He says, so that they may establish your hearts without blame with all his saints. He says, I'm doing this because the word establish means to, to firm up, to stabilize something, to buttress it. And he says, I want you to be solid like granite. I want you to be solid in your faith, in your following of Christ. I want your faith to be so strong that it's immovable. This term is the opposite of of being disturbed that we saw in 1 Thessalonians 3.3. He says that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. In other words, shaking back and forth like a dog's tail just like a branch in the wind. He says, I don't want you to be disturbed. Rather, I want you to be what? Strengthened. And he said, that's why I sent Timothy to you in chapter 3, verse 2, to what? Strengthen you. Same word, to solidify you. We talked about how you go into a building and fortify it for earthquakes. And he says, that's what I want done with your faith. This is why, this is why I pray this, so that you would be established in your hearts without blame. This term was used in the first century to describe those who had an exceptional reputation or or had exceptional merit. And he says, I want you to be, have an exceptional reputation and exceptional merit, but he says, but I I want it done in a particular sphere. It's in the sphere of holiness. It's an Old Testament term. It means to cut above, to be separated, to be different other than the mundane. And Paul says, I want, I want you to be without blame and holiness, set apart from sin. Paul says, God, he says basically this, God, I want God, that, that God would establish your hearts in exceptional merit in the realm of conformity to the distinctiveness of God. In other words, I want you to be conformed to God's image. I don't want you to be like the culture. I want you to be separated and apart and different, set apart for God. And then he says this. And Paul is is at this point looking forward. He says, I want you to have this exceptional testimony. I want you to be blameless. I want you to have all of this. And he says, he says, I'm looking to the future. This is why I want this for you. I'm not thinking about today. I'm not thinking about how you behave in the short term. He says, I'm praying forward. And he says, I'm praying forward to the time where you will be for our God and Father. Again, this word here, it has the idea in the presence of. He's in the presence before God. And he says, you're going to have a time where you are going to stand before God. There's going to be a time, a moment of divine and ultimate assessment before God. 
And he says, I, I, I see in the future a time where you need to be ready to stand before him. There's going to be a time where you're going to give an account. Romans 14.10 says, speaks of it in, when he says, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So he says, he says, I want you to do this before in the presence of God because you're, there's going to be a divine assessment that, and you're going to be put before Him and, given, and be assessed by God the Father. He divines this more specifically with specific wording. He says, when are we going to be before the God and the Father? At what? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is that term parousia. We've looked at that term several times in our text. It refers more to coming. It includes the idea of presence. We could use the word arrival. It means coming to be present with. And he says, I want you to be blameless, without blame, in holiness before God at what? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I want, I want you to be on his arrival, this arrival that he talked about, that, he, that in chapter 2, verse 19, for who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our God, Lord Jesus, what? At his coming. And he says, Jesus Christ is coming again. And Paul says, uh, you, you, you know what? I said you were my crown my exaltation when they comes. And he says, now, but now I'm not focused on what's in it for me. I'm focused on you. And I'm praying that you will be prepared to meet the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. That they would be ready and be able to stand in his presence when he gives out judgment. And this is really the hope of the church, is it not? As they look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, he will come. He will come. And then he says this third description with all of his saints. With all of his saints. Now scholars dispute as to what this phrase speaks of. Some people say with all of his saints, the word hagios here has the idea of angels. That angels will come. In other words, he's coming with his angels. And so, and, and we, we look in Scripture and, and we're told that Jesus Christ will come back again with His angels to judge the world. And Jesus in the Olivet Discourse refers to the Son of Man coming with His angels to bring judgment on the world. There's Old Testament terminology. And so they say, this is referring to Christ coming with His angels. But I think that what He's referring to here is actually referring to saints. To saints when Christ comes back again. It's referring to Christians. And we only have to look to, for a moment, at chapter 4, verse 14. And if we just go to the immediate context in chapter 4, verse 14, he says this, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who are fallen asleep in Jesus. 
And so Christ is coming, Christians who have fallen asleep, those who have died before the return of Christ, before the parousia, before the rapture of the church, they will come with Jesus and, will, and, and they will be with him. And we will look at that as we get to chapter 14, specifically verses 13 to 18, where he gives specific instructions about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the parousia, when he will come back for his church and for those who have died in him. But Paul brings this in and wraps it all together and heightens the significance of the future event to help the Thessalonians, even as he prays for them, to help them understand that there is coming a time of assessment. There is coming a time when we will stand before God the Father and we will stand before Jesus. And we will have an audience of the saints in their already perfected souls and in light of that reality, Paul prays for the Thessalonians today that they would be ready for that moment. And that, that was what was important to Paul. That's what he prayed for. He prayed with eternal values in view. He wasn't just hoping for a better life for them here. He wasn't just hoping that they would make life easier for him dealing with them. But he knew that one day they would stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and they would give an account. And he says, this is why I pray this for you, because one day you will stand before him. It's interesting because I think oftentimes our prayers are pretty short. Right? We, we, we don't tend to look to the future. We tend to be focused on the present. Right? We're, we're worried about today. We're worried about the next 24 hours. We're worried about the next week, the next month. I just got to get through that test. I just got to get through at work. If I can just survive to the weekend. If I can just pay the mortgage. If I can just get my, get, you know, keep my job. And so we're, we're, we're focused on all of these horizontal things and, and they become important. They become the dominant thing in our prayer life. Now we know this, that God is infinitely interested in every detail of your life. And in fact, he even calls you to pray for the things that you need, right? Give us this day what our daily bread. And I'm glad he does. So there, there, is, a, there is a focus and a legit, legitimacy to praying that way. But we also must realize that it's not enough. It's not enough if this is where most of our prayers are and if this is where we stop. And though Jesus invites us to take all our cares, this should not be the bulk of our praying. Our, our praying should incorporate the understanding of future realities. In other words, there are bigger fish to fry. One day we will stand before God and we will give an account. We want people to grow in love and abound in love and, and to continue to grow in Christ-likeness because they will stand before God. And so we need to be praying this for one another that God would help us to grow in love, that the Holy Spirit would be working in our life, producing the fruit of the Spirit, that we might be those who, when Christ comes, hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so our prayers, we need to reach beyond the physical and the horizontal and reach up into the throne room of God and ask that God would produce Christ-likeness as love is poured out. 
And we know that perfect love means perfect obedience. And perfect love doesn't fear because perfect obedience has nothing to fear. And so we need to pray for one another that God would increase and abound our love, that it would be overflowing and that we pray this for one another because it is necessary for us to be untouched by the world, to grow in love because love produces obedience. So let us pray for one another that we increase in true love that would be overgrowing. This is growing in sanctification. This is growing in life. And so our spiritual eyes need to be focused on the coming of Christ. And so we need to be looking to that time where He comes back. So we must pray in light of these realities for our fellow believers to grow in love. So is that the way we pray? Are we praying for others that their love would abound more and more? That it would be overflowing because you're concerned that one day they will stand before Jesus Christ that is appearing and will give an account. If this is our concern for others and if this is the way we pray, God answers these kind of prayers because they're what? In His will for us. He desires us to grow in love. God answers these kinds of prayers. And so let us be a church this next year that takes Paul's prayer and let let that be our model for the church. Let this be our New Year's resolution that we will pray like Paul. That we will say, Lord, make me an instrument Let me help others and encourage them in what is lacking in their faith. Let me be the instrument to strengthen them. And Lord, increase the love of those in my church. Name them by name. Lord, work on their lives. May their love abound because I want them to be ready for your return. If we do, it will be a very good year because this is God's will and there's no better place to be. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and we thank you for its clarity and we we thank you for, again, Paul's example to us as you have inspired him to write this down. And I pray that as we go forward in this year, that our prayers would reflect your heart and that we would pray what you would desire for us to pray. And I pray that we would take Paul's example and we would pray that we would be your instruments to strengthen and encourage others in the faith. And that we would pray that you would increase and abound us in love, that we would be established without blame at your return. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.